Let's pray together. God, we thank you for that prayer that Josh led us in, and you are almighty God. You are above all others. You alone are splendid and glorious, powerful, magnificent, and we are so blessed and privileged to be called your children. We thank you that as God, you pour out your love upon us and your grace. You give us your Holy Spirit by which we can commune with you. We thank you that we belong to this wonderful body, the body of Christ, your redeemed saints in all places around the world and throughout history. And we praise you that we've been invited into that, that we get to participate in fellowship with you. And God, I pray that as we look at your word this morning and we reflect on the truth that on the seventh day you rested, I pray that you would draw our hearts into rest in you, that we would trust you and place our belief in you and know that you are sufficient and that you alone are capable of preserving us in this journey that we're on. I pray that we would find great hope in that and peace and rest for our souls. And I pray that you would be glorified and magnified for the fact that you alone are God and you alone can do these things. In Christ's name, amen. So open your Bible with me to Genesis 2. In our series through Genesis now, we have looked at how God was there in the beginning, that he created all things, that he created all things over the course of six days. And last week we talked about how God, as the crowning achievement of his creation, made man and woman, and he made them in his image. He made them distinctly male and female. And now today we're ready to look at chapter 2, which is going to give us day 7 of creation where God rests. So I want you to read with me Genesis chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. It says, Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day God finished his work that he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. We live in an insanely fast-paced world, don't we? I mean, there's work to be done for your employer, your boss to please. you got to make sure you take the commute to get to work, which is another use of time. There's dishes that need to be done, and there's laundry that's never done. Kids to get ready for school. There's yard work that's got to be taken care of. you got the car maintenance to keep up on. Your doctor's visits, your sports practice, emails to answer, phone calls to respond to. You've got meals to cook and bills to pay and the budget to keep updated. And then you've got to make time to squeeze in that workout in there somewhere so that you can stay healthy. There's friends to stay in touch with and news to catch up on, grocery shopping you got to get done and errands to run. And then, of course, there's all those church activities that you're supposed to participate in as well. And somehow, with all the energy that we spend doing all of that stuff, 
It never feels like you actually are ahead. In fact, it never feels like you're even actually caught up, right? I mean, I've noticed that when I knock one thing off my list, there's always two things ready to replace it. And there's a reason why we tend to refer to life as a rat race, scurrying around to get everything done that's got to get done. It's because we're busy, we're harried, we're stressed out to the extreme. I mean, I've even found that when you go on vacation, you do double time the week ahead so you can feel okay about leaving, and then you come back and you do double time when you get back to catch up from everything you missed out on, right? We are worried about a great many things. That's what Jesus says to one of his followers. You're worried about a great many things. And as a sort of calm in the insanity of the story of our lives, we encounter these verses here in Genesis chapter 2. This wonderful picture of God enjoying some rest at the end of his work in creating all that is made. And I can almost picture God sort of sitting back in the rocking chair on the front door of heaven with his lemonade, sort of looking out from the front porch of heaven to see the creation that he made as the sun dawns on that seventh day, just relaxing, taking a well-deserved break from all of his hard work. Now, that is profoundly not what happened, okay? I'm just making that up, but it's sort of a peaceful scene to imagine. But more importantly, that picture brings us to a question that I think a lot of Christians are confused about that maybe they wonder about or wouldn't know how to answer. We see God rest in Genesis 2, but why did God rest? If I asked you that question, how would you answer that question? Why did God rest? I don't think most Christians actually know why God rested. And if they were to take a crack at answering the question, why did God rest, they would probably say something like, I just kind of was imagining, well, God needed a break, and he deserved it, right? I mean, he busted his butt, and now it was time to chill out a little bit. And, and the reason why we would give that answer is because we tend to think of God in human terms. I mean, it's actually impossible for us to think of God not in human terms, because God is God, and we are people. We are his creation, and so we project onto him our human limitations, our human behaviors, our human motivations. And so it seems to make sense to our finite human minds that God, after working really hard over six days to make the sun and the moon and the stars and the galaxies and people and plants and animals, that after all of that, of course, God needed a break. And so God rested. God must have rested, right? Because he, he was probably just exhausted after exerting himself so powerfully to make this world. I mean, if it was us, we would need a break, right? So that makes sense. But the truth is, God did not rest in Genesis 2 for God's sake. God rested in Genesis 2 for man's sake. God rested for your sake. This is the God who tells us in Numbers 23 that he's not like man. He's not like you and like me. He is all-powerful. He's all-knowing. He exists simultaneously in every place and every time, all at the exact same moment. He knows all things without having to be told them. We are made in his image, that's true, but God is nothing like us in his being. 
He's the God who says in Psalm 50 that if he was hungry, he wouldn't tell us. Now, that's an if clause. God is not hungry. He doesn't get hungry like you and me. He doesn't need food. But he's telling his people that he's not like the pagan gods that they go to with their little food sacrifices to feed those gods because if they don't put their food on the altar, the god will starve. God's not like those ancient idols of the pagans. This is a god who needs nothing, and therefore he needs no rest, not even after accomplishing something as incredible and magnificent as creating the universe in all of its complexities. When Jesus was criticized for healing people on the Sabbath, he said to the Jewish leaders, my father is working until now, and I am working until now. The implication is that God does not rest on the Sabbath. God does not take a day off in the week. The Sabbath is man's remembrance of God resting, but God has never stopped working. Do you know that? Do you believe that? Do you understand that? God did not take a break on the seventh day because God needed to rest. In fact, if we look closely at verses 2 and 3, we see that the text tells us specifically God rested from all of his work of creation specifically. But God never took a break from his work of maintaining creation, loving creation, providing for creation, upholding creation. He never took a break from keeping the universe in existence. That he never stopped doing. God has always been at work. And so I would claim that God took a break in order to teach man, teach you, to rest in God. That's what God is attempting to do as he tells us about day seven. And this is the argument I want to make before you this morning in the hopes that I can really encourage you to kind of chill out a little bit, to stop taking yourself so seriously, to worry a little bit less, to leave your anxiety at the feet of this God who will hold you fast, to let go of those anxious fears because God invites you into his rest. God rested at the end of his creation to teach man about who he is as God, to instruct us about his plan and his purposes and his power that he is always at work accomplishing so that in learning that about him, we might rest in him. So in order for me to make my case, I need to take you on a history of rest from Genesis 2 through Hebrews 4. So let's read all that together. I'm kidding. That's a long, we'd be here for days. Okay, God rests in Genesis 2. We got that. Fast forward several thousand years, and we find the nation of Israel, the sons of Abraham, and they're coming out of generations of forced hard labor in slavery in Egypt. This is the Exodus. And the people of Israel, they find themselves at the foot of Mount Sinai where God reveals himself in thunder and cloud and darkness on the summit of that mountain. And he gives to Moses and to his people a summary of his law, the Ten Commandments. You're probably familiar with those. And the fourth commandment that God gives to his people Israel is for them to remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. This is how it reads in Exodus 20 verse 8. God says, remember the Sabbath to keep it holy. 
Six days you shall labor and do all of your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath unto the Lord. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the seas and all that is in them, and he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Now look, we're used to a five-day work week and a two-day weekend because we are blessed and we live in a world where we have lots of leisure time. We live in a time where we're actually afforded the benefit of a 40-hour work week. You, you probably think you work a lot of hours when you work a 40-hour work week, but in reality through human history, you are getting off easy. To the ancient Israelites, to be told to not work one day of the week would have been a crazy idea. They just came out of slavery in Egypt working untold hours not even for their own benefit. The work that they were doing to harvest food or make bricks, build houses, whatever it was that they were doing, that wasn't for them. It was for somebody else. And then when they managed to get off of that work, then they would have to go home and somehow find time to do the laundry and take care of the kids and feed themselves. There were no days off. There were no weekends. There was no time for rest. Their very survival depended upon them literally working themselves to the bone to make sure that they could live another day. And in the hours of the day when they weren't doing that slave labor that didn't benefit them, then they were scrambling to squeeze in all the things that they had to do to make sure that tomorrow there would be enough food on the table and shelter over their heads. And now, they're being told by God in the desert, in the wilderness of Sinai, that they're only allowed to work six days. And one day they're supposed to do nothing except give themselves to God in worship. And the question that must have immediately popped into their minds as God said this to them is, if we don't work one whole day a week, God, how will we live? How will we survive? How will we make sure that we have enough food and that our children are well cared for? And we actually know that this was a question that was on their minds because when God says, I'll provide for you and I'm going to send manna, this food from heaven, and it'll be there every morning when you wake up, but I have one rule for you. Don't stash enough food in a jar for the second day. I'll bring new fresh food on the second day. And of course, you know what people did. They didn't believe God, and so the first day they wake up, here's the food on the ground, and they grab their pots and their jars, and they stuff enough in there for a week, right? Because they had food anxiety, if you will. They didn't trust that God would provide. And when they woke up the next day, the food in the jars was filled with worms and was rotten. And so we know that they were stressed out about this command to give a whole day to the Lord, and so God's purpose in the Sabbath was to give his chosen people, Israel, a continual reminder of his power and his goodness. Six days, you work, you take care of all of your needs, and then one day you rest and you let God take care of your needs and you remember that all of your needs are provided for by God himself. 
Because our God is the God who can create with unlimited power and unlimited energy for six days, and then he can stop his creative work for the seventh day, and the universe does not fall apart. He's got it under control. He stopped creating new things. He rested from that creative work, but he never stopped laboring for the good of his creation. And so the Israelites, they were given a Sabbath so they would depend on God and so they would remember his provision so that they wouldn't fall into the trap that you and I tend to fall into of thinking that the world continues to operate and function because of all that I contribute to making it function. And the truth is, it's really only the arrogance of man that leads us to work and toil endlessly without thinking about the fact that God is the one who makes the crops grow. God is the one who sends the rains. God brings forth food from his creation. God causes the sun to rise in the morning. You don't do that. God brings the rains to provide for his earth that he loves and cares about. He sustains his creation and the people that he loves and cares about, which he placed in it. And so the Sabbath rest for Israel pointed back to the rest of God to teach them that Israel's needs are provided for by God's sovereign goodness. We might say, man does not live by work alone, but by the merciful care of God. Okay, now the next step in our unfolding of the history of rest through the Bible actually requires us to go first backwards and then forwards, okay? Long before Israel came out of slavery from the land of Egypt, God made a promise to Abraham, the patriarch of the Jews. And part of that promise that was that God would give his people a land that they would be able to call their own. We call it the promised land. That's how it's referred to in the scriptures. It's going to be a land flowing with milk and honey, which is to say there's richness and abundance there. Plenty of rain because of God's generous provision. It's going to be a land that's free from foreign invasion because God is a shield about it. A prosperous home because the people of God would follow God's law and that would produce goodness. And in Numbers 14 and then in Deuteronomy 12:10, and again in Psalm 95, we learn that God calls this land, the promised land, a land of rest. It was to be an inheritance, a land where the people of God would be well cared for under the hand of God. They would have rest from their slavery in Egypt. They would have rest from their toil and their wanderings in the desert. They would have rest from their enemies, rest from their fear and their suffering. And they would have rest because they were entrusting themselves to a God who is more than capable of taking care of their needs. A God who is powerful to defend them and to preserve them. Psalm 95 describes this God in this way. Listen along. It says, O come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. For the Lord is a great God, a king above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth, the heights of the mountains are his also. 
The sea is his, for he made it, and his hand formed the dry land. O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our God, our maker, for he is our God. And we are the people of his pasture, the sheep of his hand. So they would be like sheep, and God would be like their shepherd, and he would lead them and guide them and take care of their their needs. We know Psalm 23, he makes me lie down in green pastures. Now, tragically, Israel failed to believe God. They failed to trust in him. And as a result, two things happened. First, if you know the story, the generation that came out of slavery in Egypt and was told to go into the promised land, God sent them back into the wilderness, into the desert, to wander for 40 years because of their disbelief and their disobedience. They never entered the rest that God promised them. God would teach them about his power to care for them, that's true, but he would teach it to them through difficulty and trial and hardship, through discipline rather than through blessing. But the second thing that happened is that their children, their ancestors who did enter the promised land, they too failed to believe God and to trust in him. And so if you read the Old Testament, what you find is that Israel really never received the blessing of the promised land in the way that God intended it because they were stubborn and stiff-necked and their hearts were hard and they didn't believe God. And so they did enter the land and there were some seasons of blessing. Solomon and David are indicative of those seasons. But for the most part, Israel suffered under unbelief in the promised land. Now here's the really important part. Here's the part that I want you to understand. It was never really about Israel. That was never the point. It was never about the Sabbath. It was never about the rest that the Jews would receive in the promised land. The whole theme of rest in the Old Testament was always about something so much greater that God was doing. All of it is really just a lesson for the true people of God that they might understand that through faith in Christ, we receive the rest of God. Rest of God. His rest. Turn with me to Hebrews 3. And if you don't have a Bible and you want to grab one, we invite you to take one off the table in the back here. Hebrews is towards the back of your Bible. And we're going to start in verse 15. And I'm going to read kind of a lengthy chunk of this with some commentary in between some of the verses that we read. So I would love for you to follow along with me. Again, this is Hebrews chapter 3. And we're going to start in verse 15. So it says, As it is said today, if you hear his voice... Do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. Now that's referring to the rebellion of the Israelites after they came out of slavery from Egypt in Exodus 14, where they were told, go into the promised land, and they said, we refuse. We're not going to do that, God. Verse 16, for who were those who heard and rebelled? Was it not all of those who left Egypt by Moses? And with whom was God provoked for 40 years? 
Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of disbelief or unbelief. So what we're looking at here in Hebrews is the New Testament interpretation of the Jews that came out of slavery and were supposed to go into the promised land. And we're told that after seeing the wonderful works of God in the Exodus, those ten plagues and the pillar of fire fire by night and cloud by day, that they still disbelieved. They had hearts that were hard towards God. They didn't believe that God would go to work for them, that he would give them safety and security, that he would deliver their enemies over to them as they took this land that God had promised them. And so as a result, God disciplined them. He barred them from entrance into the promised land, and he said that they would not get his rest because of their unbelief. Instead, like I mentioned, they were made to wander the desert for 40 years until everyone in that rebellious generation died off in the wilderness. Now let's keep reading. Hebrews 4, verse 1. It says, Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as it came to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them, because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed entered that rest, As he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. Okay, now follow along with me here. The author of Hebrews now turns from talking about Israel to telling us that Israel is an illustration that we're supposed to learn from so that we don't make the same mistake that they made. God promised that he would lead his people to rest in the promised land, but they failed to trust him and believe. Now you, says the author of Hebrews, don't make the same mistake and fall into unbelief like they did. Or the same thing is going to be true of you that was true of them. Good news is here. But if you fail to believe it and you fail to trust God, then you will not enter into his rest. It's an illustration. So we're going to keep reading, and what I want you to notice here is how the author of Hebrews ties the rest that God takes in Genesis 2 with the rest of the Sabbath and with the rest that is promised in Israel. Pay close attention. Verse 4. For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way. And God rested on the seventh day from all his works. That's our passage from Genesis 2. And again in this passage he said, They shall not enter my rest. That's Psalm 95, looking back on Exodus 14. Verse 6, Since therefore it remains for some to enter that rest, And those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience. Again, God appoints a certain day, today, saying through David so long afterward, in the words already quoted, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Again, that's Psalm 95. Verse 8, for if Joshua had given them rest, 
God would not have spoken of another day later on. Okay, this gets a little tricky. Follow along with me here. What he is saying is that God rested in order to point to rest. That's verse 4. And then Israel was supposed to enter God's rest by entering the promised land, but they failed. That's verse 6. But King David, roughly 500 years later after Joshua, is still writing about rest in Psalm 95, a future rest. That's verse 7. And if David is writing about a rest that's still to come, then the peace that God offered to his people was never about a piece of property in the Middle East. It was about something much greater. Joshua did end up leading the children of Abraham, the Israelites, into the promised land to establish a nation called Israel. But we see in verse 8 that the author of Hebrews tells us that Joshua didn't lead his people to rest. In other words, the rest of the Jews, the rest that was given to the Jews in the land of Israel was never the end goal. Now here comes the kicker. We're going to read in verse 8 again. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. Okay, that's referring to this, what the Spirit says in Psalm 95, verse 9. So then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works, as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest, so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. Okay, look, in verses 8 through 10, the author of Hebrews does something that I think is really amazing. He connects the rest that Joshua was supposed to give to God's people in the promised land with rest that God talks about regarding Sabbath with God resting from his works. Do you see that? Do you see how he weaves all those things together? The point he's making is that it was never about God resting in Genesis 2, or it was never about the people of Israel keeping the Sabbath. It was never about the promised land. In verse 11, when he says, let us strive to enter that rest, the rest that he's referring to, is what comes to people through faith in the gospel. The good news that the blood of Jesus means that you can rest from your pathetic attempts to prove yourself to God so that he will accept you based on your good works. He actually calls that our Sabbath rest in verse 9. In other words, the whole theme of rest through the Bible, all throughout Scripture, is pointing us to the rest that is offered to us through Jesus Christ, my friends. I mean, if you follow Hebrews, if you've ever read Hebrews, the whole theme of Hebrews is that Jesus is better. Jesus is better than Moses. Jesus is better than the high priest. Jesus is better than animal sacrifices. He's better than the temple. And in this case, the rest that comes to God's people through faith in Jesus is better than the rest that comes through Sabbath or through the promised land. Jesus offers us rest in him 
And that's what the Old Testament is pointing us to. God's rest and Sabbath rest and Israel's rest, they're all meant to lead us to Jesus, who gives us rest for our weary souls. So for, what, for us, what that means is that we don't have to find peace any longer through appealing to our own efforts. I mean, really, is there anybody in this room who honestly thinks that you're a good enough person that God should accept you? If you do, I just want to make you aware you are delusional. And if you want to expose your delusion, ask your spouse or your children or your boss what they think. Ultimately, what man needs is not some rest that comes from a day off. It's not rest that comes from a vacation. Ultimately, what man needs is not a safe, quiet place to live like the promised land. Man needs to entrust himself to God and find peace with God. And that's what Jesus offers to us. There's another detail in here that I think is a little bit juicy that uh, we might miss from Hebrews. Did you know that the name Joshua and Jesus are actually the same name? Uh, I don't know why we use the name Jesus instead of Joshua, but they come from the same root, Yeshua. And that word means God saves. And so Jesus is better than Joshua, don't you see? Joshua was supposed to lead people, lead the Israelites, the people of God, into rest. And he took them into the promised land, but they never got the rest they hoped for. But Jesus is better than Joshua because he gives us rest for our souls. Okay, so before I get to some application, let me just say, this is why I would say that I don't think Christians need to keep the Sabbath. This is why I don't think that you need to rest on Sunday. I mean, it is healthy to get some rest, okay? You are not like God, and so you need sleep and you need rest. But keeping the Sabbath was tied to the nation of Israel, not the gospel that comes to us through Jesus. The Sabbath was a shadow of the real thing, and the real thing is finding all of our peace, all of our rest, in Jesus. And so hear me on this. God is really not interested in you giving him one day of the week. That's not sufficient. God wants us to give to him all of our hearts, all of the time. To trust him and to rest in his work every day. This is why Jesus condemns the Pharisees for keeping the Sabbath they kept the Sabbath religiously, literally. And Jesus condemns them because their hearts are far from God. They keep the rest of God by keeping the Sabbath, but they don't know the rest of God because their hearts are far from him. And so God wants all of our hearts to rest in him all the time, not to just cease from work one day of the week. And if you're trying to keep the Sabbath, to keep one day holy, then you need to change your focus from trying to keep one day holy to trying to keep every moment of every day as a precious day, precious moment in the eyes of God. Now, I might get stoned for saying this, and I don't mean this stoned, I mean th that stoned. <laughs> but I would say 
I would go so far as to say don't keep the Sabbath. Because I think it's time maybe for you to trade the shadow of that rest for the real substance, which is Christ. Instead, I would say keep Christ at the center of your heart and life always. Strive to keep the continual rest of Christ. Now, this gets us to some application, okay? Uh, The first, I already mentioned it, but let me kind of reiterate it. You can keep the Sabbath if you want. It's fine to do that. The Bible doesn't say don't keep the Sabbath. In fact, the Bible says that if there are people who want to observe certain holy days to the Lord, so be it. They can do that. But there's no new covenant command for Christians to keep the Sabbath. The greater act of obedience for Christians is the New Testament command, don't be anxious about anything. How are you doing at that? And we're commanded to do that because we are daily trusting in Jesus. In his Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 6, Jesus taught us, God knows that you need food and clothing. And he cares about that. We are precious to him. And if we are his precious children, then we can surrender to him our fear and our worry and our anxiety because we know that God in his wisdom, he's going to take care of us, his children, in the way that he in his wisdom knows is best. And instead of worrying about things and frantically running around trying to keep life under control, our focus instead should be on seeking first the kingdom of God and God's righteousness setting our ambitions on greater righteousness, greater love for God and our neighbor that produces obedience and holiness in our lives. You know, Martha and Mary are instructive here. Maybe you know that story. When Jesus visits them, Martha's running around like crazy trying to get everything under control so that she can serve Jesus. And Mary, her sister, just humbly and quietly sits at the feet of Jesus to hear what he has to say. And to learn to love him more, enjoying his presence. And Jesus says to the overworked Martha that Mary has chosen a good thing, which is to seek the face of God. Friends, the simple truth is that as big and overwhelming as your problems most likely feel in life right now, and as important as all of the activities that you do might appear to you in your own eyes, in the presence of God, all of that is very insignificant. Most of that is very petty. Again, it feels important. It feels important to me. I'm sure it feels important to you. But in light of the greater good of seeking first the kingdom of God and the righteousness of Jesus, it's not all that important. Many of us worry and feel anxiety because we've taken our eyes off of Christ. And instead, we're just looking at our problems. We're looking at our worries. We're looking at our cares. And so they overwhelm us. And I want you to understand, if the crucifixion of Jesus Christ is not sufficient to derail God in his plan of providing for his creation and accomplishing his purposes, 
then I assure you that your difficulties and your trials and your struggles are not big enough to interrupt God in his plans to take good care of you. Look at God resting from his work in creation and be reminded that you need to rest in him. Now, this brings us to a second point of application. Genesis 1-2 says that God rested from his work of creation on day seven. And so there's a sense in which now I'm going to undermine everything that I just said. But it's a little bit different, so pay attention. It is very specifically referring to God's creative acts and nothing else. God has always been upholding the universe by the word of his power. And thank God for that. You exist because God is working to keep you in existence right now. God did not check out and take a vacation on day seven. He did not leave the universe to its own devices. He didn't cease working entirely. And this should be true of you and me in this way. Not that we should keep working frantically more and more at our jobs or our housework and never physically rest. That's not what I'm talking about. We are not like God. We need rest for our bodies and our souls. But the work that we can never cease doing as Christians is the work of drawing close to God. Even the Sabbath points to this. The Israelites were told to do no work, but the purpose of them not working was so that they could worship God. We spend a disordered amount of our time working on unimportant things, neglecting the most important thing. True rest, it doesn't come from a vacation. It doesn't come from vegging on Netflix at the end of a long day. It doesn't come from a margarita poolside on the weekend. True rest comes to us from the Holy Spirit as we turn our hearts and minds to God in thoughtful, loving worship of him, in study of his word, in communion with his people, in prayer, in pursuit of his righteousness. I mean, if your soul feels like it's dying from lack of rest right now, then what you need is to work and go to God, to seek him. And that's the work that we must never rest from doing because in that work we find true rest for our souls. Finally, the last thing that I would say here is just chill out. I mean, for real, chill out. Will you stop thinking so highly of yourself? Will you just pause for a moment and admit that if you slow down and you quit your addiction to perfection and you quit your addiction to hard work and busyness, that the world is going to carry on just fine without you? It's going to be okay. We find rest for our souls when we remember that we are not an essential part of the universe functioning. I'm not giving you you know, permission to just become a lazy slob. I'm just reminding, the, reminding you that you are precious in the eyes of God and you do not carry the weight of the world on your shoulders. You really don't. And I don't care how important you are. If every world leader were to just check out and take a month off, I mean, we'd all be much better off for it. But the truth of the matter is, <laughs> the truth of the matter is, the universe would keep going. 
They could all take a month off and it would be just fine because God is in control. Look at Genesis 2 and see God even knowing that right around the corner in chapter 3, man is going to plunge his beautiful good creation into ruin because of sin. God is not stressed out. And we need to humbly remember that God upholds the universe by the word of his power, not us. Rest in God is an expression of humility. It's an expression of our trust in God. That we can acknowledge that he is God and we're not. So take a chill pill. Realize that you can rest and everything is going to be just fine. And frankly, if it's not fine, even better. Because that is God's love for you, bringing your idol of busyness and self-centeredness and self-sufficiency tumbling down to the ground so that you can learn to set your eyes on the true God who is God and you are not. And so even if it all comes crumbling down, that's because God loves you. Jesus said in Matthew 11 these wonderful words, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls.